0: good to be with you again this morning. If you open your Bibles, uh, we're going to take an offering in just a minute, but you'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to go back into that text and a whole bunch of things that I left out. We're going to pick them up this morning. But first, uh, I want to give you an update on the fact that uh, we have continued to keep open our our benevolence, our resurrection offerings, what we're calling it. Because uh, through this thing, There's a a lot of people that are going to rise up from the ashes of what's been lost, what's being uh, being limited in their life, and we're going to be there as a church family, helping our family. So I thank you for giving generously uh, over $50,000 into um, our resurrection offering, and uh, please, congregation, let us know how you're doing. We want to hear from you, Gail and I and Charlie and... Steve and Amber and Colleen, we all want to hear from you. We want you to feel free to reach out to us, get in touch with us. Let us know what is going on in your life. Let us know how you're faring in the loss of if you lose jobs or if you lose income or if your health is compromised or if you're just stressed out. Let us know how you're doing. If you have testimonies of the goodness of God, reach out and tell us. We'll celebrate them. We'll share them. Uh, we will we will enter into your joy with you. We're gonna weep together. We're gonna laugh together. We're gonna rejoice together. Uh, let me let me put that. Uh, if you want to know how you can give, many of you have learned already how to give. You can. Uh, some of you are giving directly online. You've learned how to text to give, or you can mail in your gifts. Thank you for your faithfulness, New Life City. You're doing fantastic. You're being so generous. Um, the, the bills with the bills with this big empty room go on and the, and the obligations to pastoral staff and support staff go on and the um, blessings to our missionaries go on and in fact we're trying to increase those things so thank you and uh, thank you for your generosity and your willingness uh, I want to pray and then I want us to enter into the word of God and uh before we do that i appreciate so much uh the youth i think at least two of those songs were written by the youth and uh i was i was i was certainly like going okay they they not only have captured the essence of our good gospel but they've captured the essence of the times and the application of what's actually happening in life so i'm grateful to them and uh wonderful to be able to have them bring to you uh, the workmanship, as I'll unpack that a little bit more today, of God in their lives. So Father, in Jesus' name, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. Right there where you are, touch the hem of his garment. Holy Father, we worship you this morning. We worship you. We praise you. We thank you. Nothing in these times changes your love towards us, nothing in these circumstances changes your good plans for the good world that you created. And Lord, we look for not only the restoration of our bodies in resurrection, but the restoration of all things, that all things would be made new. We groan with all of creation to be clothed from on high with resurrection life where there is no death, where there is no disease, where there is no sorrow, where there are no tears, and where all things are as they were, in the intentions of your good counsel and of your good will. And we worship you, Jesus. We worship you. Amen and amen. I want to talk to you about the grace that saves in Ephesians 2. As I've been looking at this passage, I... I left a lot of things out, and they did it on purpose. And um, it's gotten to be my habit that I'll give you a passage of Scripture for three or four weeks in a row, because there's so many things that we can glean from a text. And so I want to talk to you about the grace that saves. And um, we'll, be, we'll begin with a problem. But before we do, let's begin with a testimony of the, of the glory of God. Uh, anyone who's ever come into faith from outside faith or anyone who's ever grown up in the family of faith, there I go, sorry, or has come into a, um, a refreshed realization of the glory of God in their salvation, anybody who's like that in any way, you know that you are overtaken by a joy, you're overtaken by a feeling that you, like, how did I get here? Um, the scriptures capture it in the Old Testament when they come out of exile and they say we were like those who dream when you when you come out of a life of alienation from God or when you come through a period where you didn't hear see feel know the presence of God and you come into it it's uh it's it's such an amazing experience and I say that because uh one of the things that's that that's been a reality is that we uh we realize the joy of our salvation and then we dig into the word and we dig into the word. We go, wait a minute, this is a little bit complex and this is a little bit uh, it, at times hard to understand. And when we enter into the word, we actually enter into dialogue and debate with other people who've struggled with some of these texts. And I say that as a prelude because this morning I'm going to find myself in somewhat of a dialogue and even debate with many of my Christian brethren. But listen, they are my Christian brethren. Brothers and sisters, people I love, people that I've loved uh, for, for a long, long time. But we enter into debates that I think are actually important debates. And so as we do some of this text this morning, you're going to see that, that I'm aware that there are different ways of interpreting these passages. And, and yeah, that I think that they have consequences. But above all, I'm driven by this by the simple joy of Jesus and the simple realization that I can't believe that God loves us so much. And the thing is, some of these uh, debates that I'm going to touch this morning, the other side would say exactly the same thing. But let's dig in anyway as we talk about the grace that saves in Ephesians chapter 2. The first few verses actually express a problem, and they express the human problem. It goes this way. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now notice, and you were dead in trespasses and sin. We don't want to miss this. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following, as he says now, the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, You know that spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. So the first thing he expresses is the problem of of being dead in sins. Now, right here is where when we talk about salvation, uh, people come to a a loggerheads because we're going to ask, what does it mean to be dead in sins? And we're going to ask, what can be done about it? But we start right here. And the expression of being dead in sins, first of all, is he says, well, it's as if you went on a journey and you just straight up went the wrong way. You're just going the wrong way. It feels good because there's lots of people there. It feels like you're in the majority, but you're just going the wrong way. And then you realize that there's a, there's a spiritual power to it, but it's just going the wrong way. And it's called uh, the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air. The course of the world is this. Uh, any, any person who follows Christ knows that, that there's a, a mass crowd going in one direction and then there's Christ. And the way of the world and the way of our Christ are not the same. And he says, you were dead in the way of the world. And you are following the prince of the power of the air. You know that spirit that's at work in the, in the, in the sons of disobedience. Um, there's one moment where nobody minds, um, that it's male language. <laughs> the, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. Everybody, if you, if you realize, if you, when you get involved in a path, you realize really quickly that there's a, there's a power in it. There's a force in it. There's actually a spiritual reality in it. And sometimes you can walk in a room and feel it. And sometimes you're just in a crowd and you feel it. And sometimes you're like in the entertainment industry and you feel it. And sometimes you're out in the public and you feel it. But you feel, sense, taste, touch the reality that there is a, a spirit of uh, something that creates disobedience. It's called the prince of the power of the air now what you have there is you just have in microcosm the genesis picture of the human race entering into um, an experience that they were not created for entering into death you were dead in trespasses and sin read genesis uh chapter um, three and then read genesis four five and six and what do you find all of a sudden, death appears. You find uh, that the warning is given to them very quickly. If you do this, you'll die. If you do this, you'll die. If you do this, you'll die. And they do it, and they die. Now, a lot of people go immediately and, and build uh, like, a, build a big, big superstructure. It goes like this. And so they died. And because their bodies didn't die immediately, people want to explain it and say, well, they died spiritually. Uh, Listen, they entered into death. And the Ephesians text is here to deal with the problem of your mortality, of your actual mortality, and the problem that you weren't created for it. You were created to live. Believe it or not, even these bodies were originally designed to be immortal. They were designed for immortality, but death came into them. And so we realize as soon as we begin to live, that there's a principle of death working in us. So dead in sins means dead in the consequences of sins. Um, a lot of people, again, a lot of people want to say, okay, you're dead, and what does that mean? And we end up, I think, overstating it. I'm going to come back around to this in just a minute, but I'll just introduce it right now. He says, you were and it's real clear he's talking about he's talking about the gentile believers of Ephesus and this is important because he then goes on to say among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh now touch that a second among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind and we were by nature the children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So what Paul does, and this is, this is an important point that Paul does. Paul says, there's a problem that you have. Man, nobody likes to be told they have a problem by somebody. It's a problem that, it's a problem that you have. Now again, you Gentiles. By the end of this third verse, he says, and we have it too. And this was the unique thing about what Paul comes and tells us in the story of salvation. He's basically saying this, you have the problem and we who were sent by God to deal with the problem, we got infected with the same disease. We got touched by the same death. So you were dead and he he basically says, and we were too. And he says, "We carried it around in the in the in we all who once lived in the passions of our flesh." Flesh is an interesting word because flesh sometimes means your body, and sometimes it means uh, your mm, your identity. Your identity. Sometimes when Paul uses flesh. He's doing the us, them thing. A lot of times he's doing, he's doing the, the you Gentiles and then he's talking about us and it would be us Jews. Um, he does this because, um, the Jews' identity shielded them in many ways from identity with the Gentiles. But here he's blowing that up. He's, he's going to among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh. So the problem that Paul is dealing with, he says, it's not just a problem on you. It's a problem on us. It's part of our identity, just like it's part of your identity carrying out the desires of the flesh. Now, <clears throat> the desires of the flesh, I think in this passage is not just those base sins people talk about, but I think it is as much to do with The division of us and them. And here he's breaking that down. says, nope. He says, and by the flesh and the mind, and were, who were? We were by nature the children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So don't miss it. There's a problem of death. The problem is death. And he says, the problem is not only a problem on the sons of disobedience, but it's on the sons of the covenant as well. Just like you, we were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath means that the same consequences of death that came on you came on us like the rest of mankind. Now, let me, let me clean it up a little bit for you. Again, go back to Genesis. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. So the man and the woman died by their disobedience. But they lived on in the flesh for quite a while. But it's not lost on us that immediately the first thing that happens is they have offspring and their offspring have a rivalry and the rivalry between their offspring actually ends in physical death. And then if you read on to... So that's that's the the fourth chapter. Third chapter, their alienation from God. Fourth chapter, their children suffer death. Fifth chapter, they go through all the generations and it says over and over, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. So listen, our salvation has come to deal with this problem. This is the problem. That sin has brought death, and that it's brought death on all people, not only the the children of disobedience, but the children of the covenant, all together, he's describing them as the children of wrath. I'm going to advance, and just here's Colossians, just to tell you, you'll find these same things. In Colossians, he says, and, and you who... Uh, we're dead in trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. There he's talking about Gentiles. We're made alive together with him. With him means Jesus. Uh, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And so, so that's, that's where we're going to go with this. Problem, solution realized. So the first three verses of chapter 2 of Uh, Of Ephesians tells us about a problem, tells us the problem is universal to the human family, tells us that the problem was brought on by sin, and then he gives us a solution. He made us alive. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. See, that's where I started today. Because when I came to Jesus, I just was just... Like, really? And listen, every time that I have an encounter with Holy Spirit, I want you to know that first and foremost, it's an encounter of being bathed in the love of God again. It's like, whoa. And what happens to me is uh, because I still live in a world where I I still live in in that disconnection that comes because of the spirit of the power of the air. But man, when you get filled with Holy Spirit, here comes that love flooding back in on us again. And here comes that, that awareness, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. So... <clears throat> The first part of Ephesians, that first three verses of chapter two, is the Adam experience and how it worked out in the human race. The next verses is the, um, beginning with verse four, is the solution in Christ. Now, let me tell you how this works. What the Bible is saying and what Paul is saying in this passage is that what's true of him is true of you. What is true of Jesus is true of you. So made us alive together with Christ. And uh, by the way, I think the made us alive together, I think there's the hint of, yes, together with Christ, but it's us now, and the us is Jew and Gentile. So, but let's, let's look at it. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, and our trespasses and sins made us alive. Now let me let me go to the theological problem that I was going to tell you about because it's a little bit interesting. There are a lot of Christians, and, and in fact, most of evangelical Christianity are Calvinists, or at least I don't know if I can say most. Let me say most of the world I lived in before um, I went before I experienced the fullness of the Spirit. Most of them were Calvinist. Don't get me wrong. I think Calvinists can be filled with spirit. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Um, but most of them had a, a way of looking at the gospel that, was, that comes from um, the, the Protestant Reformation and from John Calvin. And here's how it goes. The, the idea is because the human race is dead, here's what you will hear them say. A dead person can't do anything. So what always happens when you study the Bible, if you take a figure of speech and stretch it to its literal limit, you'll almost always overstretch it beyond its usefulness, in my opinion. And so you say, if somebody's dead in their sin, they can't do anything. And then what'll happen is you'll nip away at that, and then they'll, they'll, they'll keep qualifying it. Most people, whenever you nip away at their beliefs, they qualify it a little finer. And so they'll some will say they can't do anything, Some will say they can't respond to God at all. Then you'll show them God, then people responding to God, and then they'll say, well, they can't respond to God in faith. So let's just touch it. Let's look at it. When we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Now I'm fixing to tell you something that probably most of you don't know. In Calvinist theology, you are born again before you believe. In Calvinist theology, you are born again in order to believe. So it goes like this. Because you're dead, he has to raise you from the dead so that you can have faith. So regeneration or the doctrine of the new birth as it's taught to Nicodemus. In in the Calvinist construction of things, you almost never hear this openly preached. you're, You're in it before they openly preach this. So that this is why lots of Calvinists didn't like Billy Graham. Billy Graham, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. And a Calvinist will come along and say, that's none of, that's none of our business. That's God's business. <clears throat> so again, where does it come from here? Some of you will remember that in chapter one, we talked about predestination. And so the idea goes like this. Before the history of the world, God predestined some to be his family because there was nothing they could do. The whole human race is lost and damned and going all, all, all their own way. There was nothing they could do. But God was decided in eternity past to have a people for himself. And so he chose some to be his well, then the only way they can be his is if he supernaturally raises them from the dead, no participation on their part. And once they're raised from the dead, then they can believe. So the idea is you come alive and then you believe. And that's uh that's 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 Calvinist theology. So so regeneration precedes faith. <clears throat> and when I tell that to people, they go, oh, no. Well, then you go look up this thing called the Ordu Salutis, the order of salvation, and you see how it's unpacked for you. And, uh, but I would show you a different way. Because what we're going to see in a minute, he says here, when we were dead in our trespasses to sin, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. It's by a gift. Now listen, no one argues with the fact that we didn't do this. God did this. No one argues with the fact that we couldn't accomplish this. Only God could accomplish this. The argument is in the how did it happen? So so he gives us a, a tightly compressed picture of it here. We were dead, he made us alive. By grace you've been saved. And it says, raised us up with him, seated us in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All right, so the idea is God is sovereign, God gets all the glory, God does everything. And uh, so, so this, is the, this, is the, this is the conceptualizing of it. It's hard for people who've never heard it, to get it. And I want it to be hard for you to, to get it because I don't, I don't think this is how it happens. I don't think this is how it works. Um, when he expresses here, even when we were dead, so yes, even when we were dead in our sins, yes, he made us alive. Anybody who's ever been saved would say, I was dead and he raised me from the dead. Everybody who's ever been saved would say that. And being saved, the idea of being saved, means coming out of that way of the world, coming out of that power of the spirit of darkness, being delivered from the world, being delivered from the spirit of darkness, and being brought into a new way of life, a new way of seeing, a new way of understanding. So how does it happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. I always have to get there in a sermon, don't I? By grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So, the first part of the solution is a part that just declares it. The second part of the solution says, Well, how does it happen? How does that happen? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand beforehand, that we should walk in them. All right. Touched a lot of words here. We touched the word saved. To be saved means to be delivered. To be delivered means to be delivered from the state you were in into another state. And specifically, it meant to be delivered from uh, being in death. That means Even though my body will perish, I'm saved. I'm delivered from death. One day, I'll have a new body. By the way, I think it will still be a physical body like Jesus' resurrected physical body. One that can eat and one that can drink and one that can touch and be touched. I think it'll be a physical body. People want to know, well, they always want to know what heaven is like. Don't ask what heaven is like. Ask what new creation is like. Because new creation is when heaven and earth are united again in the oneness that God originally created the heavens and the earth to have in, in Christ Jesus. Now, so the word saved... The word the word dead, what is it? So you were dead. All right. If you stretch that word, it says you can't do anything. So let me poke a couple of holes in that. So the first time that death came, it came on Adam and Eve, and then death was on their children. So anyone would have to say Cain and Abel were dead in their sins. So first question is, Were they able to experience God? And the answer is, yes, they were. He talked to them. He interacted with them. They experienced that interaction. So the next thing, someone who holds that a dead person can't do anything has to say, well, they can't respond in faith. Well, is that true? Can they not respond in faith? Because it's obviously true that, number one, Abel did respond in faith. What are you talking about? Cain and Abel brought gifts of worship to God. God received Abel's worship. He did not receive Cain's. What was the difference? The New Testament tells us the difference. The New Testament tells us that Abel, by faith, offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Well, I have a whole teaching I do about the fact that it wasn't an attitude of faith, it was an act of faith. It was, it was, it means this. So she said, what is faith? Faith is when you see something so clearly, you know how to respond and you do respond that way. So for instance, um. Uh, I knew all about Jesus a long time before I had faith. That is to say, I sort of had the faith of demons. I was lost, but I but I was scared to death because I knew it was true. So the fact that I knew it was true didn't change me. What changed me was was that I, I saw it and suddenly had hope that it could be for me. And I cried out to the name of Jesus. And when I cried out to the name of Jesus, He changed me. Somebody said, was was that faith? I'm like, yeah, it was faith. Because I later went and found out in the scriptures. It says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I called out to him. I cried out to him. I said, I'm lost. If you can save me, if you can save me, save me. I cried out like a child. And, And he did. Now listen, let's go back to Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to God. God rejects. Abel's sacrifice accepts Cain. I'm I'm sorry, rejects Cain, accepts Abel. Um, In the New Testament, in Hebrews, it says that that Abel came by faith. What did he do by faith? He do what he knew to do. He brought an acceptable sacrifice to God. Now, I I have a whole other thing that I can go into with that. I don't want to go into the depths of it now because it takes too long. But Cain also brought a sacrifice. God didn't accept it. When God later goes to Cain and he says, why why are you cast down? What's, What's going on with you? And then he said to him, if you do the right thing, will you not be accepted? Because Cain had obviously brought a sacrifice that he knew was not acceptable, but he brought it anyway. So he had interaction and he resisted God's plea. Ah, there's the the touch of it. So Calvinism also says you can't resist God's grace. But But all through the Bible, I think the witness is there that yes, you can absolutely resist God's grace. And Cain did resist it. And his resistance was unbelief. So, listen, faith is a response to God, but it's a response based on God's revelation. It's not a response based on your disposition. In other words, you can't do whatever you want to do to be acceptable to God. You do what He invites you to do. This is why when we preach the gospel, the gospel is Jesus Christ. He's the gospel, He's the good news. And that's why when we read this passage, it says, um, it's, it says these, these strange things about made us alive together in Christ, meaning what's true of Christ is true of us. So Christ is the answer, by the way, for both the Gentile and the Jew, meaning, A Jew can no longer bring their Jewishness and say, this is the basis of my acceptance. They can no longer do that. It's not their flesh. It's their faith. The father of the Jewish nation was Abraham. Abraham was accepted by God because of his faith. It says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. I've talked about that a lot in the past too. So let's just go over it again. You were dead in your sins. Sin brings death. Even while we're alive, death works in us. How does death look? It looks like people who walk in the course of the world. It looks like people who walk after the spirit of the power of the air. It looks like people who die without hope. We were dead in our sins. He made us alive. How did he make us alive? Well, the Bible says by grace through faith. Now, this is the next problem that rises because someone says, um, no, 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 no. You can't, it can't be through faith because that's something you do. Ah. So in other words, the Calvinist turns around and says, if you think your faith brought you into a relationship with God, then you're wrong, you're wrong, because it says, look what it says, and by grace have you been saved through faith and, and that's not of yourself. Or they'll even say this, they'll say, and even that is not of yourself, it's the gift of God. No, that's not what the text says, that's not what it says in the Greek. Um, by, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. What is this? This is not speaking of faith. This is speaking of the whole act of God's salvation. How do we know that? Well, Greek rules of grammar tell us that the and this does not agree with faith in um, in, in uh, gender and case. It's not the same. It's not the same thing. So the this is the big this. By grace you've been saved through faith. And this the by grace you've been saved by third. It's the gift of God. Of course it's the gift of God. Of course it's the gift of God. Jesus is the gift of God. (laughs) We were all lost and God said, I'm not leaving you that way. I'm coming to get you. What did he have to do to come get us? He had to become one of us. And then he literally had to enter into death. The, the, The Good Friday story is about Jesus who went there where into death why we were there we were dead we were there so he went there but what was the difference the difference was death could not hold him it had no claim on him why because he was without guilt without sin it's the gift of god not as a result of works, so that no one can boast so let me tell you something Calvinists, they make a big deal out of not boasting in your salvation. I want you to know something. I've never met a person that's not a Calvinist that boasted in their salvation either. Anybody who saves, no. We didn't do this. He did this. We didn't accomplish this. He accomplished this. We didn't achieve this. He achieved this. This great work of salvation is God's achievement, not as a result of works, So that no one may boast. So I want you to know, you go down the Methodist church, they ain't boasting about their salvation. You go down to the the Reformed church, they're not boasting about their salvation. You come to the Pentecostal church, we're not boasting about their salvation. We're boasting in Jesus. So we come together there. These are interesting little problems. Now say, let me go, let me go back and just touch it again. So the Calvinist says, you can't believe unless you're born again the non-Calvinist says you can't believe unless God initiates it in a way of showing you grace so listen Adam sinned what did he do? he went hiding what did God do? he said where are you dude? Did God need the information? No. It's the relationship. It's the pursuit. And then his sons came and brought worship offerings. One of them was accepted. The other one was rejected. The one that was rejected. God pursued the one that was rejected. He pursued him. He appealed to him. He he reached himself out to them. So yes, God initiates salvation with us. The only difference between the Calvinist and the non-Calvinist on this point is I would say you can resist God's grace. And the Calvinist would say you can't resist God's grace. Um, I do have this on my side. Every stubborn person knows what resisting is. every. Every stubborn person knows they've been offered a way out a time or two and they've said no to it. Every stubborn person knows about about resisting. And I say, unfortunately, some people can resist eternally. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then he goes, For we are his workmanship. And what you saw today by the youth of our church was the workmanship of God. When we bring art, music, poetry, this halting sermon, when we bring our acts of kindness, when we bring the love that's in our heart and let it flow out toward our brethren, when we bring words of hope instead of words of despair, words of peace instead of words of destruction, we are... His workmanship. It's Christ in you. It's the work that he's done in you. So what, you know, um, there's no such thing as a kid that doesn't want to present themselves and offer something. And then hear mom and dad say, wow, that was amazing doesn't exist. The kid kid wants that. Is there anything wrong with that? No, not absolutely, no. But what I'm saying to you is that you are actually the workmanship of the Savior. You are his boasting. Paul said, to the Thessalonians you're the reason i boast not my salvation but i boast in you because you are the workmanship of paul who labored among them to bring forth something beautiful and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them and don't and even go back to the the go back to the previous piece so that in the coming ages, he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness. Because we're his artwork. You are God's masterpiece. You are the work of God done in Christ. I'm going to read some more. I'm going to read the solution applied to you because I think it's important. And then we'll end today. But let's just, this, is, this is going ahead for next week. So here he's, he's making the application. With all that he said before, he says, you Gentiles, you were, this is what you were like. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, even as Israel was brought nearer to God out of Egypt and into that covenant relationship that was renewed, so the Gentiles now are brought near by the blood of Christ Here I am preaching the the next week's sermon. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Made us both one. Who? Jew and Gentile. And broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinance. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God through one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to us who were near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit, in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, your fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God. Don't miss this. I'll just, I'll just close with this teaser. We always think that God is building mansions for us. This passage says he's building us into a dwelling place for God. So that's where we'll go next week. May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God be with you. I want us now to enter into this. I want you, uh, I'll give you a minute. I'm going to say a few things. If you want to get bread and get the cup and let's share together one more time in the Lord's Supper. I've told you why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because, um, first of all, it's... This is the center of the Christian life. This tells the whole story. The the bread and the cup tells the whole story of the Christian life. And I'm doing this because um, you're not here. We can't lay hands on you. We can't bless you in other ways. But Jesus is here, and he's there, and he's here to bless you and here to touch you. And so I want you to know you can get healed. This morning, uh, if you need healing in your body, I want you to... Enter into the Eucharist, into the Lord's Supper, into the communion with your heart set on the fact that the Bible says that, that all, that all our sins were laid on him, but it also says all our infirmities were laid on him. I want you to enter into this with the understanding that this was Christ giving the Passover Supper to his disciples and that I want you to understand fully and, and get hold of the fact that that you're going through your Passover. One of the things that was true at Passover is that when the children of Israel came through the Passover, the Bible says there wasn't a feeble one among them. That is to say, when God took them out into the wilderness, he took them out healthy and whole. And so Christians for centuries have believed that in the receiving of the bread, in the receiving of the body of Christ, they could also access the grace of God for healing in their body. And so you're sitting there, if you have pain in your body, I want you to uh, not focus on your pain, but on the one who's taking your pain. If you have illness in your body, we say no to that illness. If you have feebleness in your body, we say no to that, because we're saying yes to Jesus. And then I want to say, if you're listening to me and you say, well, I, I haven't given myself to Christ This is the time to call upon the name of the Lord. Because I'm not just eating bread and drinking the cup. I'm receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I'm receiving Christ. I'm receiving his life. And Jesus wants you to receive him. If you don't know Jesus, receive him now. Receive him. In fact, pray with me. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I don't want to just eat bread. I want to receive you. I want to know you. I want you to be my Lord. I want to be yours. I want to to pass from death to life. I want to receive. And so church, I tell you this morning, the body of Christ is given for you. Give to each one in your family the bread. And let her see. This is the body of Christ. Oh, the cup, oh, the cup, the cup of our salvation, the cup of His woe. Cup that was the portent of his hour, of his suffering, of his entering into death, of him tasting death for every person. The cup of the blood of Christ, shed by him, received by us. This is the blood of Christ. This is the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant. Receive him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace father of jesus the son and of the holy spirit amen church god bless you amen